Well, one thing that I hear a lot of people say they really missed over the last year and a half is, is all the big concerts that got canceled, all the festivals that got canceled, all of the stadium arenas that got canceled, and even some of us were planning on going to a concert last March or April. It was a worship act who we were going to go see and just big old group of people worshiping together. And like everything else, on March 13th, it got canceled along with all the rest of it. And so we were disappointed with that, and we still are. I haven't been to a big concert in a long time. Uh, There's something in our hearts, for those of you that go to things like that, uh, that just really loves what's going on there. Uh, All those people gathered together, and there's so much energy in a room like that. And then the music, when it's done really well, and all the people are singing along, and there's just such an allure to it. Even if they're singing, you know, Hey Jude, or some song that you don't even believe in, there's just an allure to all these people gathered and singing together that is so much fun. I remember when I was in college, I knew a guy who went and saw U2 in concert, and he came back, and he was telling everybody about it, and the thing he kept saying was he would just get real serious, and he would say, it was a religious experience, and he was not kidding, right? Like, he meant it, and he's not the only one who's felt like that. All of us were, like, eating out of his hand when he would say stuff like this, because there's just something deep and moving and even religious about being together like that, singing along with all the anthems, and having all those people who have the same enthusiasm that you do. That's deep in our hearts. And some of us would like to think that churches are kind of ripping off that concert atmosphere with what we're doing in church. But actually, it's the opposite. They're not ripping us off, right? Actually, we're not ripping them off. I said it wrong. All that, and then I just dropped it on the point, didn't I? (laughs) We're not ripping them off. They're ripping us off, right? It's a far more ancient practice to gather, be enthusiastic, and sing along with the anthems in worship of the God of the universe. And the reason we love so deeply being at those big concerts is because We were actually made to be gathered around, not a rock star, but the king of the universe, full of anthems, full of songs, full of well-played music that fills up the whole place, even with smoke and lights there, right? Lightning flashing at the Lord's presence, smoke filling up the temple in worship of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the King of Kings. That's where God wants your life to be headed, is around that throne. It's not the only thing we'll do in heaven, but that's one of the big parts of it. And the best picture you get of that is each week right here. A crowd gathers. We sing to the Lord Jesus all together. We even clap our hands like we just did and lift up a shout of praise to him. What I want to tell you this morning is that the sort of worship that the Lord calls from us, if we would do it together and as we do it together, is one of the most satisfying and delightful things for us as well. It doesn't just glorify God in heaven. It does. It doesn't just make his heart glad and rise as a sweet smell in his nose. No, it also satisfies our hearts too. So much that for people who don't get that experience much in church, they're just drawn to big concert festivals because they just want to be somewhere where we have all of this stuff. We're going to look at Psalm 33 again this week. We looked at it last week. Last week, we focused on the middle of the psalm, which told us four different ways that the Lord is worthy of the worship that we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about just what he asks from us when we gather together. When we sing together, like we just did, 
What does the Lord want it to be like? What's his standard for worship? And so we're going to focus then on the first three and last three verses. I'll give you the breakdown already. The first three verses give us all the detail of what he's asking for, and the last three verses model it. I'm going to read for you the whole thing. Let's look to Psalm 33. We'll read the whole thing. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers up the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he's chosen is his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The words of the Lord. What we have in the first three and last three verses of this psalm is a call to lively worship. And as I said a moment ago, the the work I pray that the Spirit of God does in your heart is just showing you how delightful, how satisfying it is to worship Jesus in the manner that he calls from us. And that may look different in your lives depending on where you are. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe that is the word the Spirit of God will use to make you a follower of Jesus. Or if you are, maybe he will elevate the level of your worship and praise that you offer to him every Sunday. Perhaps he will even use these words in this psalm to mark us as a place that is filled with lively, authentic, true worship of Jesus Christ as Savior. I pray the day comes when people leave this room and they say, Well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but those people sure do. All right, that's what I want a person who stays lost when they walk out of our doors to say. Maybe the Spirit of God will do that here and mark us in that way, and maybe he'll draw many to him through the enthusiastic worship we offer to him. Now, the worship the Lord's calling from us here, it's it's not modest, right? It's humble, but it's like... Show up every Sunday you're able and leave it all on the pew, worship. Like, it's, it's a big deal. And some of us have to look at that and say, well, okay, is, is that legit? Like, is that for real? That's hard to do. Like, why should I do that? And we got to remember then last week's points, which were how worthy of it he is, right? A God 
as worthy as Jesus Christ is worthy of what we're talking about here in these few verses we're looking at now. So that means I need to review last week a little bit. You may have been here, and maybe this will refresh your heart and warm your heart again. Or maybe you weren't here, and I can give you a whole sermon in one minute. How's that, right? How's that for a deal? So, so last week, we looked at four reasons Jesus is worthy of this kind of worship. Uh, the first one is simply that he will shoot straight with us. Uh, our world is full of voices. Your life is full of voices about the big questions. And trust in the mass media can only go so far and trust in social media can only go so far because people say wacky things there, don't they? All right, trust in the friends and family you have to tell you the truth about big things that can only go so far. But there's one source you can trust to tell you the truth every time the Lord God in his word will shoot straight with you. You have one reliable source. Now, a God who will do that and tell you the truth every time about the most important issues, that's a God worthy of your worship. Second reason is that unlike anyone else in your life, he does what he says he will do. Now, you know what it's like to be let down by people. If you've ever tried to work on a team together at your job, or if you've ever tried to rally people together in the church to get something done, you know how it goes, right? Okay, so I'll do this, and you'll do that, and he'll do that, and she will do this. And then, inevitably, two of those four people will not do what they said they were going to do, right? That's just how it works when you try to work together on stuff. The Lord is so different from this. Not only does he do what he says he's going to do, his voice has so much authority that it's already done when he says it. He says, let there be light, and there's light, right? There's no problem with follow through there on that one, right? He says, let there be an expanse to separate the waters from the waters. It's just done, right? So only God has this level of follow through and authority with his word that when he speaks, it either is happening or it is going to happen. Who is like the Lord declaring the end from the beginning? So that's the second reason. Third reason he's worthy of worship, like what we're going to talk about, is that he's the only place to look for true justice. All right, we're looking everywhere for justice these days. If, if you look to Twitter for justice, you get mob justice, which is not justice. If you look to the government for justice, which to some degree we should be doing, we're going to get imperfect justice from them, because they're not perfect, right? They're sinners too. But when we look to the Lord for justice, we get justice, right? He's the only one sitting on the throne of heaven looking down upon all the children of man, seeing everything we do, recording everything we do, storing it up for a day of judgment when it will be read back to us. And if he has recorded all of your deeds for the day of judgment, that means that he has recorded the deeds of the other guy too. And all of those people who have wronged you, they also will meet the Lord in justice one day. If you want to look for justice, look to the Lord. That's the third reason he's worthy of our worship. And the fourth is that he delivers his people. Israel could look to him for deliverance in military victory, deliverance from plagues, deliverance from famine. We get to look to him for deliverance from something else, our two biggest problems, our sin against him and our certain death one day. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from death. Only he delivers his people, right? So when we are looking at a God who shoots straight with us, who does everything he says he was going to do, is going to give us perfect justice, and is the only one who can deliver us from sin and from death. Now, can you agree with me? That's a God who's worthy of whatever kind of worship he wants, right? We come here and we say, whatever you want in worship, we're going to give it to you. You are that worthy of it. Now, as we're looking at it, we got to ask, who is it that's called to worship him like this? 
Should, should everybody on earth worship him the way that we're going to read here? Well, the psalm answers it for us. In, first in verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord who? Oh, you righteous, right? Okay, praise befits who? The upright. And then we skip down to verse 20 toward the end. Now, this is the people talking. This is the kind of people who say, our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. And then in verse 22, let your steadfast Lord, O love, love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. 21 also says we trust in his holy name. So there's two things you see about the people who are called to worship him like this. We trust in his name and we've been made righteous and upright. So this is then the people of God, those who worship God, his people, those who trust in him and have been made upright and righteous for that. We are the ones called to worship him like this. So you may be here this morning and saying in confidence, I'm a child of God, I trust in Jesus for salvation. If that's you, this is the worship called of you. Or you may say, well, no, who is this Jesus? Or no, I don't trust Jesus in this way. You want to be one of God's children. If that's you, the call that the scriptures make to you is to repent and believe the gospel. That's what it says many times in the scriptures. Repent and believe the gospel. You're to become one of his people who worship him rightly. Repent and believe the gospel. To repent means to turn from everything that you are and how you see yourself, all of the wrong that you do, and even like how you view the world and look at the world, just turn from all of that to Jesus and who he says you are and what he says about the world and the way that he says to live, right? To turn from all that you were to him, all that he is calling you to be. That's to repent, to turn back to him. And to believe the gospel means, on one hand, to believe it's true, the historic message that Jesus was God-made man, came to earth, lived, died to pay for sins, rose from the dead, ascended up into heaven. And just believe that that really happened, that that was real, and to trust in his work doing that to make you right with God. So someone who's believing the gospel will say, I used to be God's enemy but because Jesus did all of that, he has made me right with God. And now, now God has forgiven me and I'm right with him. That's what it means to believe the gospel. So if you'd like to be a child of God, if you'd be one of the people who are his people, righteous, upright, glad, trusting in him, the way to get there is to repent and believe the gospel. If you're willing to do that now, I'll call you to do it now. Or if you already have done it, here then are four things about the worship that God calls from you as one of his righteous, upright people who trust in him. First, God wants loud, lively singing from the heart. God wants loud, lively singing from the heart. We see this first in verse one. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. You hear loud, lively singing from the heart there. Praise befits the upright. And then we see it in verse 3. Sing to him a new song, and then play skillfully on the string with loud shouts. And then we see in verse 21, looking at the end of the psalm, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. You see the grammar there. Because we trust in him, our hearts are glad in him. 
So add all this together, and what you've got is a human heart trusting in Jesus Christ. That makes the heart glad, right? And what's one thing that obnoxiously glad people do? They sing, right? I'm not talking about obnoxiously fake happy people, like people who are really happy all the time. They walk around singing, right? We get together like this, our hearts trusting in Jesus, our hearts glad in Him, in Him, and that just causes singing to come through our mouths. Now, we see this aspect of human nature all over the place, right? You go to a soccer match and somebody scores a goal and everybody's heart becomes glad. What do they do? They start chanting and singing and clapping, right? That's just what you do when your hearts are glad and you're together like this. You see it at sports events. You see it at concerts. You see it all over the place. What's going on is the human heart is just natural that when it becomes glad, singing often just comes out of us. That tends to be how it works. I remember when it was a 12 years ago now almost, that uh, Emily and I had just gotten married, and we'd been married about, I don't know, two months, and we found out that she was pregnant with our first child, and so we were overwhelmed with joy and, and just plain overwhelmed at the same time, um, and, and it was a really, it was kind of a delicate situation because we had some friends who were trying to have kids, and, and, and it wasn't quite working out, and so they were sad, and so we knew we couldn't just like call everybody, and, and you know, that, that would be hurtful to them. Uh, but I knew one friend who would be super excited, so I called my friend James, and uh, he was driving in his teeny tiny little Honda Civic, uh, really big Irish guy with a big old Irish beard, uh, driving in this little tiny Honda Civic. He's driving on Interstate 64, um, and I call him, and I tell him, oh, man, I've got great news. Uh, we just found out Emily's pregnant. Um, and, and it, true to his personality, on the interstate, he rolls down the window and so now on the phone, I'm hearing, <laughs> and sticks his head out while he's driving down the interstate and shouts so loud that other drivers are looking and trying to figure out what this sound is on Interstate 64 as this man is going down the road. So if you happen to see a man screaming 12 years ago on Interstate 64, it's because Emily Cook was going to have a baby. That's why. Uh, that's just what we do when we get thrilled with good news, right? Your heart just bursts and it comes out of your windpipes, right? Boom. He was enthusiastic. When we remember that the Lord has saved us, we get enthusiastic. That's how it works. When it's your friend's birthday and it's somebody that you love and the cake comes out with candles on it and you've just had a good meal together and everybody's together, you just start singing happy birthday, right? And it's full of cheer and it's full of happiness because you're full of love for that person. That's how the human heart works, and that's what the Lord calls from us. This is, though, something that largely the church in the West needs to turn back to, because the church in the West hasn't really done the greatest job of lively, enthusiastic worship. Um, maybe you've heard a really unenthusiastic singing of happy birthday. Have you ever heard that? All right, like a mumbled Happy birthday. It just makes you kind of feel bad for the person receiving that, doesn't it? Uh, there are many, many churches in the States that that's the kind of singing that we're offering to the Lord. Uh, and our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world can, can really set an example for us and what it looks like to worship Him with a shout, with a clap, with worship that is lively and enthusiastic. Uh, I thank God that here, you know, I think we're in largely a good place here, but the Lord is, is moving us in an even better direction. Uh, God has put a spirit of singing here, and you just heard it a few minutes ago, right? God, these, these people here that you're with just love to sing. 
I was struck by that the first time I visited here. Oh, thank God for a place where there is a spirit of singing. Uh, but you can visit many churches in the West, some traditional, some modern, doesn't matter what the style of the music is. There's many places where the singing offered up to the Lord just doesn't match the picture that we are given here. And so that then is a call for us to say we are turning from that kind of lackadaisical style of worship into what the Lord calls us to. He's given us a spirit of singing. We love to sing. We are going to embrace that and do just as the Lord asks of us here. Uh, It's also a reminder to us, though, that we are always going to be fighting that kind of pull back to the way that most churches do it, right? You've visited other churches and felt that, and that's kind of what feels right among Western churches. But the Lord calls us away from that, saying, no, leave those ways, go to what he says here, loud, lively singing from the heart. And I want to ask those of you who come from other countries to help us with this. Uh, Many of you come from countries where the worship is more enthusiastic than it is here in the States. Uh, And I know how it works. You you go to a new place and you look around and you say, oh, this is how these people worship. I need need to be polite like them and worship like them. And I want to ask you to to not be polite and not do that, actually. What what, what you should do is worship like you worship in your home country. Uh, Because many of the countries you come from obey verses like these ones better than we do. And we need you to set the example for us as to what enthusiastic worship can look like. So if you come here from another land and you want to show us what worship looks like in your land, just show us what it looks like. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to do that. The Lord may use you to lead us to better faithfulness in worshiping him with enthusiasm through your bravery and your courage and your willingness to do that here. So I'd like to ask you to do that for us. I also want you to know This is why we have made a few changes, just little tweaks in the way that we conduct our worship services. Uh, If you're part of the choir, you know this already. If you're not, you may have noticed that on the weeks when the choir is up here, uh, they now stay up through the whole singing time. They used to not be up here during that. Now they are. Uh, And what's more, the anthem that they sing used to be right before the sermon, and now it's right before the worship. Now, those are just small tweaks, right? They're not major. Some of you probably didn't even notice, but they were done intentionally and with a purpose, and it looks to me like they're working, and I'm glad for that. Here's why we're doing it like that. When the choir gets together and sings, well, I know you guys, and I know what that does in our hearts, right? That that encourages us. And some of you have said to me, man, when they're done with that, I'm ready to sing. Uh, One person even told me, he was a little embarrassed, he was like, I know that's not like the point of it, but when they're done singing, like... I'm, I'm ready to worship. I'm ready to sing. And I was like, no, actually, that is the point of it. Like, that's, that's why they're doing that, right? They're singing to lead you and sort of prime the well and get you ready to sing. Then we stand up, we sing together, and they're still up here. Well, why are they still up here? To set the example of what spirit-filled worship looks like. That's why I'm up there with them sometimes, even though I don't know the parts and I'm butchering everything, but I'm just up there to encourage them and to, along with them, set the example of what spirit-filled worship looks like. Their job is to lead us in worship. And so we're giving them the freedom to do that and the freedom to be up here during that service and do that. The point is loud, lively singing from the heart throughout the entire room. So remember that. Their job is to encourage you in singing. Before we move on to the next point, I need to answer a question some of you may be asking. Because when you read about joyful, glad worship, you may ask yourself, or you may ask me, well, what about when I'm overcome with sadness? What, what do I do then? And that's a good question to be asking, because we, we are not a people, Christians are not a people who never get sad, are we? Right? Those of you who are Christians, who can, can, you can confirm that. 
And we are not a people who fake happiness when we are sad either. Uh, No, the example in the Bible is Christians, faithful people who get sad, who say, I am sad about this, and even sing about their sorrows. We have laments in the psalm about this very thing. And, and so I want to address that first. Uh, first, let's just look at the range of the psalms so that you can see songs like this are not the only thing we sing in church. But if you just flip back to Psalm 31. We'll just look at verse 10. He says, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. Okay, so the whole point of that is just to give you a feel for the range of the psalm, right? Here we are today in shout for joy to the Lord, but it's not like there aren't any points in the psalms that are, that are low as well, okay? So there is happiness, there is joy in the psalms, there is sadness as well. No matter what you're feeling, you can find somebody in the psalms who feels the same thing as you. That means there are times in our worship service where we're singing of our sorrows, and that's good and that's right. Uh, there are some who would say that every moment of a worship service must be glad and happy, and that just it isn't real to life, is it? It isn't what we do here at all. However... Probably the most simple to remember, the easiest to remember description of a Christian's emotional life is from the Apostle Paul. And it's just four words. Always sorrowful, yet, some of you know what it is, what? Always sorrowful, yet rejoicing, right? Somehow, Christians can be people who are sad, not just sometimes, but all the time. And even when we are sad, we are still rejoicing. That's because your heart is complicated enough and complex enough in God's design to do both at the same time. If you can imagine how someone might feel if they were a huge Colts fan and the day before they are about to marry the love of their life, the Colts lose a heartbreaking loss. How's that person going to feel that day? Sad that the Colts lost, happy that they are about to marry the love of their life the next day, right? If you can connect with that person, you can feel what it's like to be sad about something and happy about something at the same time. Christians can do that as well. And the way this often works is, is this. When you come to Christ, let's say all this stuff is on, you know, measured on meters and scales. If your problems are like right here when you come to Christ, the next day your problems are still right here, right? And maybe they go up, maybe they go down from there, not really in correlation to the fact that you're following Jesus. But here's what changes. Your sense of hope, your sense of rightness with God and the important things, your biggest problems, are way down here. And then you come to Christ, boom, biggest problems are up here, right? Death is taken care of by resurrection. My sin against God is paid for. And these things are more important than these things, right? So you go from this to this. And so with the Apostle Paul, you can say, I'm always sorrowful, and yet I'm rejoicing. Why? Because your biggest problems are taken care of, even while the little ones continue on. One songwriter I heard recently, he said it like this. His name is Steph MacLeod. I think he's over in Ireland or Scotland, based on his accent. He says, uh, he said when I came to, to Christ, when I became a Christian, uh, it wasn't like, uh, here's your Ferrari, uh, and, and let me introduce you to your new wife. 
Uh, he said, no, I, I just went back to the homeless shelter. Um, but he said, I had something I never had before, and that was gratitude. Um, he said, that got me through everything. That's a little bit of what it's like to be always sorrowful and yet rejoicing. You had problems before you came to Christ, and I bet they didn't go away the next day. But even as you're sorrowful in every moment, you can be rejoicing. And that means, with your biggest problems taken care of, you can come here on Sunday morning, loaded with all the problems in the world, right? And look to the Lord and say, my big ones are taken care of. And so I can still rejoice even maybe while you're crying about the stuff here on earth, still looking to him, still glad, and still rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. So that's the first thing God wants from us, loud, lively, singing from the heart. Second thing he wants is lively instruments to accompany that singing. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. We see three groups of instruments listed there. First, verse 2 mentions the lyre. It says to give thanks to him with a lyre. Uh, that's an instrument that was somewhat like a modern acoustic guitar or a mandolin or any of those ones that have a bunch of strings and then a sound box on the end and you kind of do this number with them. Then make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. A harp is a, a curved deal that has all those strings on it of different lengths. We actually have a harp inside of our piano. If you can imagine that thing upright and people plucking it, that's a harp. And then finally in verse 3, the second line, play skillfully on the strings. So the Lord clearly wants some instruments going along with this singing. He likes those moments of a cappella singing where we clap and sing. He delights in, for the majority of it, instruments accompanying that singing, lively instruments accompanying lively singing. <clears throat> they do have a distinct role in the Psalms. Um, the word psalm actually means a song that is sung and accompanied by string instruments. Uh, that's, what, that's what a psalm is. So all 150 of these are designed to, one way or another, be sung by somebody or a group with stringed instruments accompanying them. And we do see a hint in that here with play, sing to him a new song. This is verse 3. We're singing to him, and parallel with that, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So he wants the singing and the playing of the skillful strings going together with those strings accompanying that singing. So throughout the Psalms then, the main job of the instrument players, largely string players, but there are other ones too, is to accompany the singing. And stringed instruments are really useful for that. With piano, stringed instrument, great for accompanying singing. Guitar, Stringed instrument, great for accompanying singing. Uh, since then, other instruments have been invented, like the organ, or in some churches, the synthesizer, all great for accompanying singing. Not every, every instrument's good for that, but those instruments are. And where they are, we use them to accompany our singing. You should know there is a, a little bit other ways you can use instruments in the Bible. Um, one you might think of is David playing the lyre for King Saul when his spirit is troubled, right? Just instrumental playing of music did something even to settle his spirit, to set the tone of the place, and even spiritually, like it kind of did something to determine which spirits were in the room and out of the room even. And we nod to that a little bit when before our worship service starts, there is playing of music going on, setting the tone for what's going on here. Perhaps the Lord is working through it behind the scenes to, to take care of which spiritual creature is in here and which is not. He leaves a veil over that. We don't know what he is doing there. But there's a purpose there for that instrumental playing to set the tone for a place. 
And then for instruments to accompany the singing of the people of God. A few other uses that don't really match well in worship, like they use the trumpet in battle. Uh, You know, we don't need to send commands to you guys to charge through the trumpet, so we're probably not going to be doing that one. But many of the other ones do have uses there in the worship service. And the Lord seems to delight in it and desire it. There are some who would say that in the New Testament there are no instruments, and so we should not have instruments in our worship services. Uh, You need to know that the book of Revelation actually has instruments in it, and they are not on earth, but in heaven, where God is being worshipped on the harp. Uh, That's because the Lord delights through all ages of having music played to him in worship, and he loves that. Uh, That means that the instruments we have up here, some of them are expensive, but they're not a waste of money if they bring delight to the Lord's heart to hear them played lively. And so we keep doing that, we keep tuning them, we keep putting our money into it uh, because it's worth it. So there are two things we try to keep in mind, and I want you to know what our musicians are trying to do when we do this. If the purpose of the playing is to accompany the singing, and we want lively playing accompanying the singing, that's a log that you can fall off of on two different sides. You can do that wrong two ways. One is to have no life in the music, right? It's so dreary and just bleak that it just doesn't inspire singing. It's also possible to fall off that log the other way, playing that is so loud and so difficult to sing over that it actually bats down the singing, right? And so every week, our instrumentalists, you don't know this maybe, but they're working hard to make sure that the way they're playing, the volume they're playing at, the way that it builds through the songs, the different octaves they're choosing to play in, all those factors have the same purpose, and it is to sit right under your singing and lift your singing up, because the Lord wants lively singing accompanied by lively playing. That's the goal of what they're doing here. And our goal as a people is to complement that with lively singing on top of it. That's what our musicians work toward, lively instruments accompanying lively singing. Third thing God wants in worship services like this is very similar. He wants those instruments to be well played. He wants us to play them with skill. And we see that in the third line of verse 3. Let's look there. Just the first two words. Play skillfully. Those are two words that any musician in a worship service just takes, latches onto, and says, I know what I've got to do now. I have to work hard, and I've got to make sure that I'm playing it well. Like the other two points, this is easy to understand, right, but difficult to do. And these musicians, I want you to know, they put in a lot of work making sure that their hands and often their feet and embouchure and all that stuff is just right for their playing before the Lord. What it means for us here practically as a church is that even though it would upset some to hear it, we do have a standard for how good you need to be to be a part of the worship service on the stage and play the instruments. And we get that standard right here. The Lord says, play skillfully. He wants the most skilled musicians in the church on the stage, leading the playing and leading the singing. It means also that quite a lot of work is put into the worship hour. Uh, A lot of us don't know the number of hours that these musicians put into what they do. And many of us have heard, I've actually been part of churches before, that would say things like, well, it's all for Jesus, it's okay, we don't have to do, you know, play it perfectly, it's for Jesus, right? Now that's kind of the spirit, because it's for Jesus, Anybody can play. They don't have to be good. You don't have to try to do a good job. All right, just let's all just have a little fun together. Uh, the truth is, because it's for Jesus, we need to offer our best to him. Right? 
And when we see words like play skillfully, and our musicians do this, we're going to work and we're going to play as good and as well as we can for him. Those of you that put work into that, I just want to encourage you. Um, I want you to know that I don't think I'm the only one who thanks God for a long heritage of excellence in music. Uh, And as time goes on, the people who are on the stage will change and the instruments may change. But one thing that as long as I have anything to say about it, I don't want to change is that heritage of excellence in music. People who are up here and know what they're doing and can play those songs well. Some of you, actually all of you who are part of it, the time that you guys put into this stuff uh, I know it's like, because I used to be a church musician myself, right? You get the songs, and you're already working on scales and stuff like that just to keep your hands and your lips doing what they're supposed to do. Then you've got these songs to learn, and so you go through the songs again, and you've learned the songs, and then you show up to rehearsal, and you're doing a thing, and then the thing isn't quite right, so you run through it again, and then you ask questions, and you're figuring out. Before you know it, you've put in several hours just into this like 20 minutes of singing that we are doing. And sometimes it doesn't feel like worship, because... Well, you know what it's like to stand and sing Jesus paid it all, right? There's a feeling there. You're thinking about the gospel and you're pouring your heart out to Jesus. But when you're practicing, it's a lot more like, try that again. Try that again. It's just this like work grind feel to it. And that doesn't feel like worship, does it? But I want you to know that if the Lord says, play skillfully, and you're hearing that command as one of his children, and saying, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to play skillfully. And that means going through this little thing one more time, and then again, and then again. If you're doing all of this, following the Lord's commands to play skillfully, that means he receives every extra run-through and every practice session and every rehearsal and every little bit, extra minute or two that you put into it, he receives it all as an act of obedient worship. The Lord sees that. And you may be thinking, ah, I messed it up again. Got to do it again. I didn't feel like worship. The Lord is smelling that and says, my child is practicing because my child wants that music to be good when he or she plays for me in church. Be encouraged to know that the Lord receives that as worship. He is glad when he sees it. And practice on and play on. We thank God for you guys that put time into this. Keep doing it and hand that heritage down to whoever comes after you. Let's move on to the very last one. This one's a little different from the others. When God gives new victories, he often wants new songs. And this is a pattern in the Bible. He gives new victories, and then he inspires new songs in his people. Now, the other three points today are very easy to understand, but hard to do, right? This one's the opposite. It's hard to understand, but if you grasp onto it, you might see that in the scriptures, the people who do it have a very easy time doing it. It's kind of of strange in that way. Now, this comes from the words in verse 3, first line, sing to him a new song. And some of you see that and you're like, okay, simple enough. We got to keep singing new songs. That's part of it, right? Well, that is something of what it means there. But there's a little more depth in the meaning, actually. Uh, The words new song are actually a type of song in the Bible. Uh, In the same way that we have uh, hymns and praise choruses and power ballads and love songs, and those are all different types of songs, right? Uh, They had uh, lots of different names for them, Maskell's, this, that, Hallel. Uh, A new song is very particularly a song that comes right on the heels of some great deliverance or great moment, either in a person's life or in the history of Israel. 
This pattern of a great deliverance happens, and then suddenly they sing a new song that they have never sung before. That's a new song, and it happens from start to finish in the Bible. Uh, The people cross the Red Sea on dry land, and then they look back and they see the Egyptian army pursuing them, and the sea crashes on the Egyptian army. That's a famous story. Less famously, the very next thing they do is Moses and Miriam lead them in a new song. Sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he has thrown into the sea. Sometime later, they're in the desert and they have no water. They are about to die of thirst, or at least they say they're about to die of thirst. We trust they're telling the truth. It would be hot out there. The Lord gives them water. And they sing, spring up, O well, right? A new song comes when the Lord delivers them and gives to them water. And you read on of Hannah, who we talked about just a few weeks ago. After that sermon that I preached to you, after that passage, she then brings Samuel to the temple. The Lord has given her the child, and she sings a new song to him, right? The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord topples the mighty, and he lifts up the lowly. She sings a new song to him. David does this many times in his life. In 1 Samuel 22, he sings one that seems to be about every deliverance in his life. In Psalm 40, he says, we just read it, right? I waited patiently for the Lord. He lifted me out up of the miry bog. He set my feet on the rock, made my footsteps firm, and he put, what, a new song in my mouth, all right? This is the pattern. And on and on it goes. Ezra does this. Mary does it. The angels do it when Jesus is born. In Revelation, it happens many times. Great cosmic battles and victories. And then heaven just bursts forth in a new song. And often it's called a a new song, right? So there's the pattern. God delivers his people and they sing a new song to him. This happens start to finish there. What we get here in Psalm 33 is that when God delivers you, And if he gives you a new song in your heart, sing it to him. There's a reason he's doing that. And that can mean something for you individually, or it may mean something for us as a people. Uh, It means that if you're driving home from the hospital after a big scare, and the Lord just puts a little inkling on your heart to sing a song you've never sung before, you might be doing something. Next thing you know, you might be singing, she laid down, she got back up again, praise God, praise God. What a great moment that would be on the way home from the hospital. Uh, It could mean instead that if you have an adult child who is wayward from the faith, and maybe the Lord will bring them home one day, and when he does, your, your heart just wants to sing how open the arms of the Lord are to sinners who come back to him, or whatever it is you may want to sing that day. He might put a new song in your mouth. If he does, lift it up to him. I tell you what, we're almost four years from the payoff date on our mortgage, and it keeps coming sooner and sooner. The Lord keeps doing great things. If we get to that date together, and we're paying off that mortgage together, I've always said we'll throw a party that day, right? After reading this and studying this, I wouldn't be surprised if he puts a new song in our mouth that day, too. If we get together and we celebrate and we just sing something we have never sung before. We've been praying the Lord would fill this room again, right? And if he does, what if he puts a new song in our mouth as he does it? How sweet would that be for us as a church? We ought to let this open our eyes to the fact that he may just do that. If he delivers you from something, if he delivers us, perhaps we'll put a song in our mouth, too. Uh, there are many, many things this could mean for us as a church. It certainly means that much. When we back up and look at it through the lens of the gospel, all of us have been delivered by the gospel, all of us here who trust in Jesus Christ. And that's really the key deliverance, right? That's the one that never gets old. 
And I think we can take from this that there should be new songs written every generation about the gospel. If God saves another generation, they're going to want to sing songs to him. And if he saves people in your grandkids' generation, they're going to want to sing new songs to him. And after that, and after that. And that does mean then that those new songs about the gospel need to keep coming. And when we come in here on Sunday morning and there's a song in the handout that we've never heard before and it's written by somebody who's 20, 30, 40 years younger than you and it is about the gospel of Jesus, that's an occasion for joy right there. The Lord is working in the generations that have come after many of you. There's a reason to rejoice. He's putting new songs in the mouth of the church because he keeps saving people. He keeps bringing people to him no matter how crazy things get around us. He is putting new songs in our mouth. Praise God. I love songs like this because they give us a picture of what we are, I think, just on the cusp of becoming as a church. Here we are, people who love to sing together, right? People who every once in a while let up a little shout and a hoop and a holler. People every once in a while clap our hands or lift our hands. And how close we are, I think, to just going right over the edge. And truly, each Sunday, shouting for joy because we are righteous, singing to him a new song, playing skillfully on the strings. We already do that one pretty well with loud shouts. Oh, how close we are and how the Lord might even use pictures like this to make us into that type of gathering. If there's one barrier in our way, I think it's just that when you're around a people who, you know, aren't necessarily clapping and you want to clap, you look around and you're like, nah, I probably shouldn't, right? I'd be the only one, right? And there's just a little fear there, isn't there? And, and I think the hurdle we got to jump over is let's just put that fear aside. Um, the Lord's done mighty things for us. And if he puts in your heart a desire to clap for him, a desire to shout, to hoop and holler, to sing loudly to him, he died and rose. He's, he's worthy of that, right? And so maybe he will move you to be the first one. Maybe this will become indeed a place full of shouts, claps, and loud singing to him. Why don't we spend just a little bit in prayer asking him to do that very thing, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.